Shalom and welcome to the Vibe of the Tribe podcast from JewishBoston.com. I'm Miriam Anzevin, and I'm joined by my co-host, Dan Seligson. Hi, Miriam. By the time we publish this podcast, it will have been more than nine months since the coronavirus pandemic struck the United States. Since that time, more than 17 million Americans have contracted the highly contagious virus. Nearly 320,000 have died. Amid the day-to-day isolation and adaptation, amid the joblessness, business closures, remote schooling, toxic politics, misinformation, and countless other horrific aspects of 2020, it's sometimes easy, way too easy, to forget what's actually happening beyond the headlines. People are dying. Each of the victims is a painful loss. A teacher who inspired his students, a doctor who worked to save others from the virus before contracting it herself, a loving grandparent and community leader who died alone, a married couple taken off life support together as their children watched on iPads. The numbers are staggering, yet it often seems people have become numb to the human toll of the pandemic. Numbers can tell us the scope, but not the cost to families, friends, and communities. That's where Alex Goldstein comes in. Alex is a communications expert who served as press secretary for Massachusetts Governor Deval Patrick before starting his own communications firm, 90 West. In March, Alex launched a Twitter account, Faces of COVID, to show the faces and tell the stories of those lost to the coronavirus. The Twitter account's profile states they were more than a statistic. While it started as Alex's personal tribute to lives lost to the coronavirus, it has become a vital source of information and communal grieving for nearly 130,000 followers. Alex joins us today from his home office to talk about the project. Alex, Thanks so much for joining us today on The Vibe of the Tribe. Pleasure to be with you. Really happy to have the opportunity to talk with you both today. So on this podcast, we always frame things in a Jewish way. So there's this famous phrase from Pirke Avot, Ethics of the Fathers, which says, you are not obligated to complete the work, but neither are you free to desist from it. And this is a pretty famous, well-known phrase. And there are so many ways big and small, that people are contributing to fight against the pandemic. Wearing a mask, not traveling to see family on holidays, if you're Dolly Parton somehow donating huge amounts of money to develop a vaccine. Why did you specifically feel called to create Faces of COVID as part of your part of this work? I am not uh, a trained medical professional. I do not have the money at my fingertips to be donating the way I'd like to at scale to make the impact of Dolly Parton. But the one thing that I have been trained in over the years is storytelling. And at the beginning of the pandemic, I was feeling the way I think many people were, which was both horrified by the the stats that we were hearing even early on about cases and deaths and hospitalizations, but also could feel that the 
abstract numbers were not enough to tell the story of what was going on and that it even had the risk of either overwhelming or almost desensitizing people because they are lacking in that emotional story. From my experience and the work I've done in, in politics and other parts of my life, some of the most important and impactful storytelling you can do is done when you center the lived experiences of real people. I just set out initially as a part of my own catharsis to identify some of these stories because I knew based on what I've seen in the past from local journalism, which is hanging on by a thread, unfortunately, right now, but does still exist in this country, that these stories were definitely going to be told and I wanted to, to find them. And sure enough, it did not take that much research to realize that there were actually quite a few of them, stories and profiles of individual people that we were losing. And that is what began the process as a way of uplifting the basic dignity of people we've lost to allow them to be more than a statistic. I will also say that while that is was probably the central thrust of it to start. The other thing that's been, I, I, I can never say that sentence without also adding that accountability is a really big part of this because uh, I think every single one of these 3,500 or so stories that um, we've shared so far are asking a really important question of us, both as us as community and when we think about government and policy, which is, did we do enough to protect people? And I think the answer, look where we are. We're nine months in. We're going to get hit, probably hit 300,000 people dead in the next couple of weeks. We have failed dramatically. And I think these stories help us call that question in a more emotionally evocative way. And I think their families of the people who have, are losing somebody want those questions to be asked. I don't think they accept that their loved ones had to die. And certainly at this, this scale, I think the accountability piece really exists alongside the affirmation of the dignity of those that we're losing. And I think that's something that they would want. So I want to dive a little bit deeper into this idea of stories, statistics, and scale. I read a quote from a University of Oregon professor recently he said, if we're talking about lives, one life is tremendously important and valuable, and we'll do anything to protect that life, save that life, rescue that person. But as numbers increase, our feelings do not commensurately increase as well. So the clinical term for this is psychic numbing. I looked it up. Um, blend this with this American idea of individualism, which is increasingly defined as everyone for themselves. And that has made, in my mind, the pandemic morph into a political and social wedge. What does this mean for our ability to beat it, to beat COVID, if we're unwilling to make necessary sacrifices like just wearing a damn mask, avoiding travel and other things that people are doing right now, gathering in groups, because these deaths are somehow just too abstract for them to, to grasp? I'm going to, might need to use some of that quote. I mean, I think that it's, it really is right on and you're, you're asking the right question. In uh, a couple of weeks ago, Massachusetts hit the 10,000 uh, death mark, and a number of journalists reached out to me and asked me what I thought about 10,000. And my immediate reaction was, what's the difference? I mean, I understand the difference in terms of pure volume of loss, but I was devastated at 1,000. I was devastated at 20. I was devastated at the first five. I, I, I understand that psychic numbing, but I also think it's asking a question of what does it take for us to actually care about each other? And I think that the one of the questions that all of us have to ask ourselves is what kind of country do we actually want to live in? Do we want to live in a place 
as you put it, that says you're kind of the individualistic narrative that you are on your own and I'll see you at the finish line and I will get my family across the finish line how best I can. But if I see at the end, great, we'll high five. If not too bad, that's kind of the way it shakes out in society. Or do we believe that we actually have a responsibility to people we don't know, to strangers we haven't met in our neighborhoods, in our state, in our country, and that we actually, you know, as my old boss, Deval Patrick, would say that we have a stake in the dreams of struggles of our neighbors as much as our own. I think more people in this country believe in the latter by a significant margin, but the people who believe the former have gotten really, really good at being really loud about it. And they've been echoed at the top of the food chain by the president. The history of this moment is being written right now, right? The history of the pandemic is being written now. And I see Faces of COVID as like a very small digital way of contributing to that storytelling. But it's not happening in just sort of an open vacuum. It's actually happening in an environment in which there are people trying to rewrite history in real time with misinformation, which makes that process so much more challenging and it makes it so much more difficult to people for people to understand what's real and what isn't. By the way, I'm a political being and I put a lot of this at the foot of Republicans who have sort of embraced that individualistic notion and have in many cases been pushing phony science or calling it a hoax or whatever, you know, it's not as if Democrats are immune from this either, because we have a lot of elected officials who have put themselves in situations where they tell everybody one thing and then personally do something else. And there's contradictions in their own behavior. And I think all of that has led to the moment we're at now where we're nine months in and things are as bad as they've ever been. I worry that we're sort of at this point where People are kind of throwing their hands up and saying, well, now I just got to, we've already lost. So let's just get to the vaccine. And, and that's, that's all we've got left. That's our last bullet. And that is going to have disastrous consequences when people realize that they may not be getting a vaccine for six months. That, that was a long winded way of saying, this is, we are not in a good place. And you would have hoped that nine months later, we would have learned some lessons. And it's not that I'm not sympathetic to people who have fatigue around this. But are you willing to experience a little bit more of the sacrifice to protect somebody you don't know, or maybe someone you do? I want us to be in a place as a country where that is just a unifying question. We all know the answer, which is yes, of course. I want to revisit something that you just said that's really important about misinformation. We all know now what a huge role that has played in this situation. What are some go-to trusted media sources that you feel are actually doing a good job of conveying the information and humanizing the toll of the virus? I think a lot of people, a lot of news outlets have gotten very experienced and adept at doing the data part of the conversation. It was a ubiquitous phrase in April to flatten the curve. Flatten the curve is a statistical data concept, right? It's about looking at case rates, and we're all watching a graph each day to see if the curve is being flattened. We figured that part out, but what we haven't done as effectively is connect that to the, the curve are humans. Those are people that we're talking about. And the unfortunately, there have been precious few media outlets that have really invested heavily in the storytelling of real people who we've lost, which by the way, not only is it just a good thing to do to inform your community, 
it's also a powerful public health tool and deterrent for bad behavior, right? And risky behavior is allowing people to see what the consequences are. Chris Hayes is a reporter at MSNBC who's focused on it. There have been a couple other national, like Nicole Wallace, like a couple folks that try to do, add some of that into their daily newscasts, but they are the exceptions to the rule. At the local level, I think there has been more investment. But what's interesting is having done this nationally, there, it's very clear that there's certain outlets that are really committed to it. And I could tell you like the Detroit Free Press, they got nailed in the first couple months of this thing. And the Detroit Free Press has probably written 500 profiles of people who have died of COVID. The Times-Picayune in New Orleans, a ABC affiliate in San Antonio. I know who's doing it based on it's that granular because it is it has not been nationally adopted as a, an important part of the storytelling, which is why I look Faces of COVID is a Twitter account. And that's that's all it is. It's a Twitter account that finds stories or takes submissions from people and posts them up on the internet. The reason there's 130,000 followers and the reason people seem to be really invested in it is not because in and of itself, it's either innovative or beautifully curated or anything like that. I try my best. I try to make it look good and be factual and have a good cadence to it, whatever, stylistically. But the reason people are drawn to faces of COVID, I've come to realize, is because there's nothing else out there. You have no other option. Where else are all of these things being brought into one place? I'd love to pat myself on the back and say, we've built something so extraordinary. But all I've really done is create something that doesn't exist. And that's a sad statement and commentary on how we've narrated this pandemic so far. Alex, when you talk about the coverage, I'm thinking back to March and how well the death toll in Italy was covered. I'm just kind of randomly thinking mm -hmm. about like, I was seeing more emotional gravitas from national news stories about bodies in Italy than I ever saw in yep. the last nine months about this country. And it, are we being prevented from seeing the coffins coming back from a war or something? Are, are we somehow turning a blind eye to what's happening here and feeling things for other places? Are we just unable to, to show this kind of stuff because of polarization? It's just, it's perplexing to me. The truth is, from my experience is if you look for it hard enough, you can find it. But the problem is it hasn't been fully mainstreamed as a meaningful way to engage with people. And that um, I think is hurting us. I think, look, there are some built in challenges that make a pandemic where proximity and physical presence makes things dangerous, right? And I am not here saying, I think there should be reporters wandering around COVID wards trying to tell this story in a more visceral way. That said, I think what we've seen is that the, I feel like there's almost been a decision made that we're gonna focus exclusively on data as our storytelling vehicle and underemphasize the the human toll. And by the way, it is not because of a lack of people who are willing to tell their stories. We've had 350 people submit their story to Faces of COVID. These are family members who are literally agreeing to have their loved one's name blasted out into social media, which as we know is like historically one of the most toxic things you could do. So you have these people in their most vulnerable moment being willing to share their loved one's story on social media. Almost all of them would also be willing to talk to a journalist. And one of the real actually upsides of the work is that I have been seeing, I just had a woman yesterday who we shared her 
loved one story a couple of days ago. And then she sent me a note and said, PBS saw your tweet about my loved one and then they reached out and now they're doing a whole story about them. And there's a guy who I've been messaging with. I've gotten to know a number of these families who we shared his dad's story from, he was kind of a, in rural Iowa. And now his dad's story has blown up as being told in the Washington Post. It's being told in all these other places. So it's not as if this is a hard and fast decision. We're not willing to cover this. I think in part it's been maybe Faces of COVID has been a reminder to some of these news outlets like this is accessible stuff. We can help you make that connection. But I want to come back to the misinformation piece because I think it's an important part of this. We're, we are not in an environment where it's just sort of the American people are saying, yeah, we're kind of open to consuming whatever you throw at us. We're actually in an environment where like a significant portion of the country watches news outlets that aren't saying we're only covering the data. The news outlets they watch are saying this isn't real. This isn't happening. It's it's all fake. And if it isn't fake, here's the BS drug that you should take from the my pillow guy to like save yourself. And so I feel like faces of COVID is not just putting stuff out there, but we're competing in the marketplace of ideas with people who say this isn't real and with a president who says it's not as significant as anybody thinks. And that environment, I think, makes all of this harder. And I do worry. I look at some of the historical precedent around things like Sandy Hook and the shooting there where the victims um, and survivors become sort of uh, targeted as a part of the hoax. I do have a fear that if the account continues to grow, that some of the folks who are sharing their stories could be on the receiving end of that. And I feel extremely protective uh, of them in that regard. But I think one of the saving graces has been thus far is that local media compared to national media, I think local media is still trusted. I think that they it probably has the local TV affiliate in Iowa probably has the most left and right viewers. And, and I think that's an important part of keeping these stories told in an environment where people aren't going to be abused because of it. We can clearly see, and you've talked about this a few minutes ago, that policy decisions have impacted how us as Americans have behaved during this time. For example, we received one stimulus check towards the beginning of this, and that was it. That's all we got. And right what happened is many people, they were forced to go back to work because they had to put food on the table and it was a choice to them, an existential choice. How do we heal the sort of dissonance in this idea that we can get through this magically without the necessary financial support that other countries are doing and have gone through this and are doing so much profoundly better than America in terms of support for just everybody during this time and allowing them to stay home, giving them the um, resources they need to safely shelter in place and not go out and spread this? How do we uh, heal this completely different way of thinking or, or make, make it make sense to people? Yeah, I think one of the challenges, and this is something I've observed just from my time working in government for a bunch of years, is that oftentimes the first narrative that takes hold is really hard to evolve, right? And I think we made a mistake. And a lot of... And part of this was like, I don't blame people for it necessarily, because we were getting hit by this tidal wave that we really didn't understand. But in the early days of the pandemic, the idea of a anything being open or there being a functioning economy whatsoever or surviving was like a zero sum game, right? Like either we 
all stay home or everything's open and we all die. Right. And the, I think, you know, and I understand that mentality and I, I was supportive of the lockdowns um, that, that we did. I think the problem is that in as a part of that zero sum conversation, nobody immediately just sort of stepped in to say, we can pay people to stay home in this country. Right. Like we don't, you don't have to lose your entire livelihood and barely be able to get by and have to stand in uh, lines at food pantries for four hours to survive. Like those are your choices. I, I think we made a real mistake there because this country has shown itself a strong willingness to bail out Wall Street banks, to bail out the auto industry, to bail out the airlines in the last 10 years. And by the way, I, I, I'm not making a commentary on which of those were just and which weren't, but only saying that if we can subsidize major industries in this country, we should be able to subsidize regular people who can't afford food. And the fact that that is controversial, I think then gets into the second problem, which is what we were just talking about, which is the, this aversion to giving people direct stimulus and relief is because of our obsession around this individualistic, you're all on your own. Because the inherent in me subsidizing my neighbor who is having trouble putting food on the table is that I'm the one helping pay for it. Now, I feel pretty good about that. To me, that's a, what it means to be a part of a society and support the common good. But unfortunately, we've had this constant drumbeat for so long in this country that you're, there's it's somehow a moral failing to find yourself in need of assistance and that subsidizing somebody is enabling them. The fact that that has stayed a part of our narrative, even in the midst of a global pandemic that nobody asked for and certainly couldn't have anticipated, I think tells you where the discourse is in this country. But it is unfathomable that at this stage, a country that has been willing to step in for corporate interests for is forever, certainly as long as my lifetime, in the midst of the recession and everything else, is not willing to step in right now for regular people. And I think it's going to be a blight on our national history that we left people behind right now. They're supposedly the greatest country in the world, and we can't take care of people in the middle of a global pandemic. Like, what are we even doing then? It's incredibly frustrating. And look, I'm not saying that the way to move policy on this is to shame people. I think in order to make effective policy, we have to find ways to get those standing in the way of this type of stimulus to get there. But we're running out of time to just be appealing to everybody's better angels. Like, this is a crisis. There was a lot of nodding going on just now. And I know listeners can't hear the nodding, but like, there's like closed I am emphatically closed nodding. eye nodding <laughs> when you were speaking just now. And I want to talk about mixed messages a little bit. Yeah, we had hands in the air. We were amening. Mixed messages. Another aspect of psychic numbing, which I brought up toward the beginning of the conversation, is that numbers cannot convey cost of COVID to an individual. You don't know what it's going to cost you when you make an unsafe choice. And that gets someone to the point where they no longer perhaps recognize a threat. Now, I'm just going to give a couple of examples. The American Academy of Pediatrics, an organization I generally would trust, wants every child in school. Yet you have written about, and I've read plenty about teachers who have gotten COVID and died. And there was an article today on the Globe about the fact that this idea that children can't spread COVID is patently false and that children can spread COVID. And regardless of the decision you make about how to school your child, 
there is an increased risk having your child in a school. There's an increased risk to a teacher, to an administrator, and so forth. This is something that people are struggling with. And I know parents who are struggling with this personally, that you need this, you need normal. We've been in this for nine months. We're going to be in it for another six months, as you said. We need normal. And the messages that we get are so mixed. How do you navigate the idea that we we have to honor and recognize the lives that we've lost, recognize the threat that is increasing every day, not decreasing, with this idea that we need normalcy, that we need holidays, we need a strong economy, and you know that, that kids will suffer mental health-wise if they don't go to school? Well, no. So there's a, in the movie, The Big Lebowski... Big fans. We're big fans. Yeah. Famous Jewish figure, Walter. And the, there's this, he is told basically, you're not wrong, Walter. You're just an asshole. And I think that we have to be careful. Those of us who really, I think, have internalized the risks of this moment um, and are trying to be persuasive, that the, the way out of this is not scolding and shaming people into doing the right thing, because oftentimes that has... I mean, it's very cathartic, but it has the opposite, can have the opposite, right? They double down on their decision-making because screw you is why. Whereas I think that the, and look, that's not to say that there isn't a part of this that needs to be a little scoldy and shamey, but I think that what I've been witnessing out there is that I think it's also okay to be empathetic to the other consequences of COVID for someone who has not gotten sick and hasn't lost somebody in their family who is feeling isolated and is maybe having anxiety and, you know, mental illness challenges or is loss of livelihood. Like, I I think that for those people, we do need to be empathetic and say, we see you and we understand why you're struggling, but also remind people, if you can hang in there for a little bit longer, there is going to be a way out of this. But the way that we get out of this the quickest is actually all of us being smart and safe and and making the right decisions, as opposed to me being like, you just killed an entire nursing home full of people because you went to Thanksgiving dinner with four people in your house. Like, I wouldn't do that. And I wish you wouldn't do that. But I'm not going to get you to do it less, I don't think, if I approach you that way. And I think that might be part of it. But look, at the end of the day, it comes back to that original question, which is, if as a philosophical paradigm, people do not believe there is value in community of taking care of each other, and that you have a a purpose and a responsibility in protecting people you don't know, we will never beat this. We won't. Because the individual sort of selfish narrative there's no way out of this hole. In a, you can't beat a pandemic as a individualistic society that just says, see you at the end of the carnage, right? Maybe eventually 100% of the people get sick, 5 million Americans die, and the people who are left standing get to build a new society. That doesn't sound so great to me. And so I think part of it is just reminding people why they should be invested in the outcomes of other people. That doesn't have to be a shaming. It should be aspirational. Like, boy, doesn't that sound nice? And by the way, I think that's like a lot of what American exceptionalism theoretically is supposed to be about. To me, in my family, the American dream is everybody lifting while they climb, right? Bringing people with them along the way. That is the American dream. But there is a bastardized version of the American dream, which is I will make money and success for my family at any cost, come what may to everybody else. I know which team I'm on. That's so interesting that you're saying, you know, what you say, because it has seemed, maybe this is wrong, but it has seemed that in 
past moments of crisis in America, there has been a sense of unity and national purpose sometimes. But that does not seem to be happening here at all anymore. There isn't this, we can join together, we can do this. It's actually very, like 50% of the country is completely not on board with this. It's so horrifically partisan and divisive. Why, Why do you think that might be? I've heard some really interesting theorizing as to why this would be fundamentally different. And I think there's not one answer to that. I think it's a combination of a lot of different factors. I mean, one of them, you know, so the the corollary that many of us sort of default to, and it certainly was, it's arguably one of the most impactful moments of my own memory around like national mourning and loss was 9-11. And the, I think it, uh, 9-11 presents a couple obvious differences from the moment we're in. In 9-11, there was a quote-unquote bad guy that did something to us, and then we were able to come together to express our eagerness to defeat the bad guy, and there was a way to do that that didn't require all of us making any kind of dramatic sacrifice except maybe giving up our civil liberties, separate conversation. The I, I also think that at 9-11, look, I, I, I was very powerfully affected by 9-11. My, one of my best friends lost his uncle, who was a firefighter in New York. I had other friends lose parents. I was at Newton North at the time, and the headmaster had lost her brother and came on the intercom of the whole school on 9-11 and said that her brother was dead and broke down into tears. I mean, I remember 9-11, but I also remember the ability to physically be present with people and to mourn that together. I remember being at Temple Emanuel at a service where we were all singing God bless America and everybody was in tears at the end. And I had my best friends from high school flanking me. And like, that's a very different collective way to mourn loss than what we're going through now in which you are literally not able to be present with people. And I think the isolation and the deferral, which because more often than not, what's happening is there might be a small funeral with four or five people that's graveside, but most of the mourning process more broadly speaking, memorial services and things like that are being deferred to a time to be disclosed later, sort of after the pandemic. And as a result, the families come home from that graveside service and they mourn in quarantine in their own house. And that is so deeply different than I think a lot of the communal expectations we've had around mourning that makes people have this ability to experience it in community. And I think that that has had an impact. Unfortunately, All those things said, which are things that we can't control about COVID, that's why that may be affecting the way in which we find our own unity. The one thing we can control, uh, which we haven't, is that we are in an environment where you have the leader of the free world actively telling people this isn't happening to you. There's no brilliant communication strategist in the world who could find a way to outfox that platform right, to convince people of something. When the president of the United States is telling people it's fake, it's a hoax, it's not what you think it is, gets sick himself and gets access to a monoclonal treatment that only he and like his immediate friends and family can have access to, that is not the way. Like, it's, it's how do you compete with that? I, I don't know how you compete with that. And so what we, I think what you do is my strategy is I look at the broader conversation and say, you said 50-50. I I don't know that I'd quite put it at 50-50. I think I would say there's probably 20 to 30% 
of the American public that I will never convince this is serious, even if their own loved ones are dying. I will never convince them. I think 70% of the country can get there, and many of them already are. And I need to focus on bringing those people into a, because if 70% of the people do the right thing, we'll be in an okay place. And so I try to devote my energy there because me brawling with somebody who just says fake news, fake news, fake news to every single story I post, like that's pointless. I might as well try to have this conversation with my dog who would be more receptive than she is. So. You've tweeted something from your personal Twitter account that I thought was particularly powerful. The quote was, a few folks have asked how I choose what goes into a Faces of COVID post. How do you capture someone's life in a tweet? You can't. Instead, I try to write them in such a way that without seeing the name, their loved ones would know it was for them. Uh, I found that profoundly beautiful. Do you hear from the families of people who have been mentioned in the tweets and what kind of feedback are you getting? I try to communicate with every family that submits something to us. I like them to know when their loved one's story is up. And sometimes those have turned into broader engagements where there's opportunities to, for me to connect them with media and things like that. But I've also had the experience where a couple months ago, uh, a woman sent me a message and said, my father died of COVID. And a couple of weeks later, I was having a really dark night, just sort of alone with my thoughts. And I was thinking about him. And so I opened up my web browser and I just Googled his name. And I had never heard of Faces of COVID. And the first thing that came up was a post about him on Faces of COVID. And I opened it up. And here I am just like despondent and lonely. And I look at this post. First of all, I'm like, what is this? And then I look and there's all these folks in the replies who are exactly what we've been talking about. Strangers I've never met who are sending messages of compassion and grace and kindness. And to stumble upon that at a really dark moment, she said, was like kind of got her through the night. And I don't have illusions of grandeur as to what this is and what it is doing in the absence of the ability to have people present with you in your morning because of a because of covid and the restrictions that come with it this may very well be one of the only moments they get to kind of shout their loved one's name out loud and allow people to shout it back right and even if it's digital only and even if it's one post in 10 that goes up in a day that means something to people. I try to use their own words whenever I can. I try to do something that allows it to be unique to who that person was because I think that the people deserve that, right? It's probably been one of the most beautiful parts of doing this work. I've been lamenting that the way I've come to this realization is in loss, but I read these stories and it reminds you just how beautiful and varied and amazing the American experience is and how diverse the backgrounds are and people coming from all over the world to this uh, country. I get most moved by the stories of like the barber shop where the barber is the mayor of the community. De facto, he's not elected, but everybody knows the barber, right? And when he's gone, that destroys the fabric of the community or the immigrant worker who runs the grocery store in a rural town or big city. Like these stories 
really are a reflection back to us of who our country is. And the fact that the way I have to interface with that is as we're losing them one at a time is something I actually like, be fairly honest, I, I haven't really begun to process. My Jewish mother texted me this morning and she is a retired social worker. And she said, I f- I'm worried you're going to have PTSD after this. Maybe you should take a few days off. And I, I, I think it's possible that I haven't, I don't really like allow myself to process this, but at the same time, I also feel really grateful that I have an opportunity to find a little corner of the shit show to contribute something. Because as I said at the outset on your first question, I'm not a doctor. I'm not a nurse. I'm not a pastor or a rabbi or an essential worker. I am a storyteller trapped in my house who cares about other people's stories and wants to find a way to tell them. I feel grateful that I've been able to build something that allows me to do that because I think feeling powerless is probably the only thing worse than what I feel now. Speaking of the present, and we have the biggest surge that we have had in this country in the nine months since COVID hit our shores, makes me think a lot about the future. And on January 20th, whether you <laughs> personally accept it or not, we're going to have a change in administration. Uh, and with a change and a transition of power, we're also going to have a different take on how to confront the pandemic. What are your hopes for the next administration in terms of? starting to address the many failures that we're currently seeing? I think what I'm looking forward to the most is adults. No more toddlers. I, no offense to toddlers, but I don't need them running my pandemic response. I think it'll be really exciting to have an administration that centers science in our approach to our problems. One thing that I think is why Joe Biden was successful and that he will bring with him into the administration is he's also a deeply empathetic person and models that in the way he communicates. I think Joe Biden's someone who understands that centering science is the foundation, but centering the lived experiences of real people is the way to connect everybody to the bigger goal. And so that to me is beautifully aligned with my philosophy on these things. I also I'm hopeful that, and based on what I'm seeing so far in terms of anticipated appointments and stuff like that, I I am as much as the last four years fills me with a level of rage (laughs) that is going to be hard for me to even articulate. I try to take a deep breath and remind myself that we will get very little value on bringing in a new administration that devotes time to punching down on people and retribution for past failings, whatever. Criminal liability aside, to the extent that that is identified, you do, you you prosecute. But I want us to be more focused on getting this country reinvested in the common good than I want to see the country on a revenge tour against everybody who wronged us. And so I'm very hopeful that with this administration, we are going to see the former. And I think that's the only way out of this long term. The short term feel good stuff aside, if we really don't want to be back in this situation in four years or 20 years, someone's got to take the high road and start investing in uh, a politics that's geared towards the common good. I saw an article, actually, just saw it this morning on Faces of COVID in 
from Forbes. And in it, you mentioned that you've only been able to cover a little bit over 1% of the stories of people who have died as a result of the virus. We mentioned, Pierre about at the beginning of our conversation that you can't finish this work, nor is it your individual obligation to do so. Given that, though, how do you know when this project has run its course? I don't know that there's going to be this moment where I just wake up and say, it's done. When I started it in March, I did not have an expectation that nine months later, uh, I would be in this situation and that the backdrop would be the worst environment and worse spread of COVID than we've seen the entire time nationwide. And so I, I make no predictions about sort of what the future would be. What I expect may happen is that, first of all, I think for the, for the woman who on the dark night found herself on Google, the most important thing is that it's always there. And I, I think what will probably happen is that it will take eventually like a different form. I'm committed to exploring opportunities for more formalized archiving. There's going to be a lot of painful anniversaries that are in milestones. And I, I think if you look at the way in which 9-11 has been still present in the psychology of this country a decade later, 350,000 dead or wherever we land on this, that'll be hanging over us for a very long time. I would argue we haven't even begun the process of really uh, understanding what that means. I think that it'll probably take different forms and I'm very open to what that evolution looks like. For now, for this moment, I'm just kind of waking up and doing it like I do every day because the backlog of stories that I'm looking at in my spreadsheet is like a mile long. At this point, all I can do is just put my head down and, and try to keep going with it. And then when the dust clears, we can look at sort of what the future ought to be. But I have no expectation as to when, when that might be. Well, Alex, thank you for doing this work. And thank you for joining us today to talk about it on The Vibe of the Tribe. Thank you so much for having me. I love the work that you're doing. I love me some CJP. And I feel always feel at home within my tribe and within my community. So thanks again for having me. Thank you. Thank you to everyone out there for listening. Be sure to rate and review The Vibe of the Tribe wherever you listen to pods. Thanks as always to her editor, Jesse. To all our listeners, stay safe, wear a mask, and practice social distancing. Our hearts go out to everyone who has lost a loved one to this virus. 